0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: The
2: stress response is not the problem. Stress response is crucial but the key word is that stress is supposed to be temporary. So a good stress is you have a stress, then you have a recuperation period. Stress becomes bad when there's no recuperation period.
3: Welcome to The Tonic, I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the natural treatment of diabetes. We'll find out how to cope with stress and anxiety. We'll discuss cooking with chocolate. And lastly, we'll talk about eco-friendly sleep. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's Unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely Natural Liquid Greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager at Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products on the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and also this show, and it's always a pleasure to have him here. Welcome back, sir. How are you?
1: I'm doing wonderful. And how about you?
3: I'm doing fantastic. So we are at the tail end of the month. And this month, a lot of people are talking about blood sugar levels and diabetes because that's sort of front and foremost, and that's what we're going to cover today, yeah?
1: Yes, it is. It's a subject near and dear to my heart, as I am a diabetic.
3: I didn't know that.
1: Yep. I was diagnosed about 20 years ago, so I've been living with this one, and seeing as it's one of the things I live with, I have studied it a lot. (laughs) Okay.
3: Well, I would think so. I know how much elbow grease you put into research, and I would imagine it's like Maybe tenfold if it pertained to you personally, and i and I really didn't know that, Joel, but I think you may have noticed that you know there's a lot more discussion about diabetes recently. Have you noticed that?
1: Oh, yeah, it's insane. It's one of the uh, top three items I found in my spam box in my uh, email on a daily basis. The problem that drives me nuts is most of the Spam I get about it is always the secrets doctors don't want you to know about diabetes, or how to cure diabetes in ten easy steps, and both of them are just a load of hogwash.
3: Right, because doctors always keep health secrets from you.
1: Oh, of course, and, and, and doctor com- would.
3: And complicated diseases are always really easy to treat in ten steps. Yeah, I agree.
1: Oh, oh yeah, no problem. One, two, three, you're done. No, diabetes is a complex condition. And the nice thing is that despite it being complex, we know a ton about it because it has been so well studied for decades.
3: And the reason that it's been so studied is because it affects so many of us. What are the numbers in Canada?
1: It's actually quite scary. Now, if you look at diabetes itself, 10% of Canadians have been clinically diagnosed with diabetes. And okay, 10% doesn't sound too nasty. It's, It's a lot. But then you add to that another three percent of the population that is undiagnosed and may never know they have it, but they actually do have it clinically.
3: Yeah. You know, my father, who had various health issues throughout his life, only found out he was diabetic after he had a heart attack and required a quadruple bypass. So it is quite possible for one to have diabetes and actually not know it.
1: Correct. Because there's no quick and easy symptoms that you just, oh, I've got this, therefore i you just don't know. So you've got those two, if you add them up, are 13%. And then on top of that, you have an estimated 35% of Canadians that are called pre-diabetics. Yep. And the difference between pre-diabetes and diabetes is actually really simple. If you're really close, you're just not technically there yet. And any little missteps, and you could be fully diabetic.
3: So your pancreas is being strained, and it is still somewhat working, but you haven't sort of crossed the river yet. But a lot of this is sort of tied, well, we should talk about type 1, type 2, and type 3 diabetes, yeah?
1: Sure, not a problem. So there are three types of diabetes, actually. You've got type 1, which is usually diagnosed in children and adolescents, and It occurs when the person's body does not produce enough insulin or may not produce any at all. Right. Then you have type 2, which is the most common form of diabetes, as I put my hand up, which usually develops in adulthood and is characterized by your body not effectively using the insulin that it actually makes. So your body's making insulin, it's just not using it well. And then you have the third one, which is this gestational diabetes. And this occurs during pregnancy. And it's a little wonky in that it may or may not continue post-pregnancy. But in almost 50% of cases, it does lead to type 2 diabetes, either immediately following childbirth or later in life.
3: Let's talk about why having diabetes is, is really not great.
1: Diabetes isn't great because what it does is that it affects pretty much every single organ in your body. It's really not a good thing. What it is is that by having either impaired insulin usage or lack of insulin production at all, you end up having excessive blood sugar levels. This makes your blood thicker and harder to pump. It makes it almost syrupy, to put it in a vernacular, people might know. And by doing this, it puts a strain on your heart puts a strain on your kidneys. And through that, it makes all your organs more susceptible to impairment, damage, and disease. And all that being said, what ends up happening is it leads to a reduced quality of life, as well as common complications such as heart disease, stroke, and kidney disease, all of which really, really, really suck.
3: Yeah. So it's not just, I mean, and obviously diabetes can be fatal to somebody if it's not treated properly, but it also leads to other conditions, which of course are potentially lethal.
1: Oh, definitely. And those also include cancer. A lot of people don't know that if you're a diabetic, you increase your chance of getting cancer significantly. And you've got kidney failure, as we said, heart disease, blindness, nerve damage. And unfortunately, new research has found that it doubles your risk of depression, and that risk keeps increasing as more diabetes-related problems develop.
3: So is the depression related to the symptomology of the diabetes, or is there something physiological that happens when you have diabetes that makes you susceptible to depression?
1: They don't know yet. It's relatively new research, but they, they just don't know. They, they can't answer that question yet.
3: Okay. So particularly with type 2 diabetes, and that's what we should focus on, there are ways, there are lifestyle changes that we can do that can assist us, right?
1: Oh, definitely. And if you have diabetes, first thing you do, talk to your doctor, because they have a whole kit explaining this and how to do it and strategies and ideas. You're not alone in this. Your doctor is your partner in going through this. Mm -hmm. And you want to use them. I I can say personally, I have used my doctor, and I talked to him about this. He's great, and he's a partner with me in managing my diabetes. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing is, like many other conditions, diabetes is manageable. And it's not one massive thing you have to do. It's little things, just lots of little things that add up, and by adding up together, they make it manageable and, and quite livable without a huge big deal. Because you can do a combination of diet, activity, and supplements. The big three we, you and I have talked about since the day we met. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and they work really well in diabetes to achieve your goal. And the goal in diabetes to remember is you want to blunt blood sugar spikes, both up and down. Because diabetes gets worse the more higher your spikes are going up with blood sugar, and the lower your spikes go with low blood sugar. And what you want to do is narrow that range so the spikes don't go as high in either direction. And that is how you manage it.
3: Okay. So why don't we start with diet? What are your recommendations?
1: Well, as you and I have chatted a ton of times, the Western diet is far too heavily weighted in simple carbohydrates, sodium, and unhealthy fats. And these Oh, diabetes loves these. It just loves them. It makes diabetes happier than heck if you're filled with those. And that's because simple carbohydrates get digested quickly and rapidly turned into blood sugar. Mm -hmm. This leads to it spiking. And you go, you eat your meal, it's, oh, I got tons of, for example, white pasta, tons of white pasta. You get a massive blood sugar, then you get the crash, so the spike goes all the way down. So Mm -hmm. you get both spikes from a high-carb meal if it's simple carbs. As well, when you have excess sodium, both from added salt and from sodium found in foods, it increases your blood pressure, leads to heart disease, and that worsens your diabetes. Then you have unhealthy fats, those being your trans fats and your saturated fats. They lead to increased cholesterol, which leads to heart disease, which worsens diabetes. And those three things combined keep you on the heart disease blood sugar spiral. Right. And unless you do something, you're going to slowly go down and down and down into the spiral depths. So you got to stop it.
3: Are you working with a dietitian?
1: I was when I was newly diagnosed for about a year. I'm not anymore because I got the tricks and tips. And we worked it out and moved on. But I would definitely suggest not a problem. They're great and they can help.
3: Okay. Now the other piece of the puzzle is exercise. How does that fit in?
1: Oh. Uh, exercise is key exercise is if i can say anything from my personal experience exercise has been the single biggest thing helping me to control mine because exercise and it just makes sense you've got that excess blood sugar sitting in you because you just ate or you just drank something bing bang boom what do you do if you exercise your body uses it using it gets this spike down and i'm not talking you go out there and you pretend you're a bodybuilder you're arnold schwarzenegger no 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 no, you don't have to go insane all you have to do is for example in my case i walk mm-hmm. what i do is i try to get in about a thousand to fifteen hundred steps every day before i even walk out of my house and then during the day for example when i'm on my phone anyone who knows me knows this drives them nuts i pace while i'm on my phone so I'm talking, I'm moving, I'm talking, I'm moving, I'm talking, moving. All of a sudden, I've gone through 15,000 steps. Then I get home, have dinner with my family, and then my wife and I, after dinner, get up, we go out for a half an hour to 45-minute walk. And we're not running. We're yeah. not breaking a sweat even. But we're moving. And that moving, it all adds up. And I'll tell you, completely aside from the diabetes, it is wonderful going on those walks every day. You're in nature. It's nice. Even if it's negative 10 in the winter or negative 20, it's still great. And you get a feeling of joy and happiness. So your mental health increases just by being outdoors. I agree. It's a great thing.
3: All right. So we've discussed lifestyle, but you're also an expert in supplementation. So why don't you tell us what you found is helpful and what we should be looking for? Definitely.
1: First on the supplement list has to be fiber. And this is a bit of a weird one when you talk to people, because most people think, oh my God, if you increase my fiber, I'm going to have to go poop. I'm never going to leave the bathroom. What are you doing this to me? No, 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 no. First of all, there's two different kinds of fiber. You've got insoluble and soluble. Insoluble is the one that makes you poop. Easiest way to say it. Soluble is the one that has all the other health benefits, one of which is helping control blood sugar that's a big one. It does a ton of other good things for you, but that's one of the big ones. Okay. The good thing is that it doesn't make you go to the bathroom. And now with the new generation of fiber supplements, which have been out about 20 years, they're really easy to take because you take them, you put them in your drink, virtually any drink you mix, bing, bang, boom, no taste, no smell, no texture, never thickens. Easy, easy, easy to use. And what they found with trials is people who add to their diet by supplementing with at least 13 additional grams of soluble fiber a day have lower blood sugar. And we're talking significantly lower blood sugar than diabetics who didn't add that fiber to their diet. So one little trick, boom, you have a big difference. What's next? The next one is my latest favorite vitamin, vitamin K2, specifically in the all-trans MK7 form. It has multiple benefits for diabetes. Number one, it improves insulin sensitivity, which enables insulin to work better in your body at lowering blood sugar. Mm -hmm. At the same time, MK7 is highly anti-inflammatory, and it has cholesterol-lowering properties. Both of those combine to reduce some of the cardiovascular risk associated with diabetes. So on one hand, you're actually helping insulin work to do its job in your body. And on the other hand, at the same time, you're helping reduce some of the risks of heart conditions because of the diabetes. So you're hitting it on two points at the same time.
3: Okay. And what else?
1: Next, we'll talk about chromium. Chromium is an easy one. It's an essential mineral that you take just very, very little amounts of. It's considered a micro mineral. Mm -hmm. But if you have too little chromium in your body, your body can't use glucose efficiently. Studies have found, multiple studies that is, have found that supplementing with chromium, just that one little thing, can reduce blood glucose levels. Big bang boom. Easy.
3: Okay. Anything else?
1: Definitely. Two more for you. One is milk thistle. Mm-hmm. Milk thistle is an herb that most people know for liver and kidney health, Right. but they found with multiple studies that regular milk thistle supplementation improves glycemic control. Essentially, it helps your body handle blood sugar, and much like K2, its anti-inflammatory properties also prevent heart issues from diabetes.
3: Okay, and we have time for one last
1: The last one's going to be ginseng, and ginseng, this is both the Asian and the North American varieties. Mm -hmm. They have been studied for use in lowering blood sugar in multiple studies, multiple places, a lot of it actually right here in Ontario, and studies have found that both types improve insulin sensitivity, enabling the insulin to work better in your body.
3: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Always my pleasure, sir. Always.
3: We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss dealing with anxiety and stress on The Tonic. Looking for natural supplements to boost your immunity? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's rebuilding your immunity after an illness or simply maintaining a healthy immune system year-round, New Roots Herbal is here for you with a wide range of proven formulations. Discover Protector, Astragalus 8000, Ultra Zinc, and their best-selling Vitamin C8. If you're looking to build your immunity from within, look no further than New Roots Herbal, available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. NutriPure is a Canadian company which formulates and manufactures natural health supplements over and above industry standards. Since 1989, it's set itself apart by providing a line of products that not only reduce symptoms but target the causes of specific health conditions. In addition to its offering of superior products, NutriPure has always been there for its clientele with around the clock customer service led by health professionals. Talk to their experts on social media about their stress and anxiety product, Relax LT, containing magnesium, L theanine, skullcap, linden, and chamomile. Nutrapure. Your health is their commitment.
2: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
3: Alexandra Leon is the second generation at NutriPure and has participated in the family business throughout her life. She's earned two university degrees in science at McGill before returning to take on the quality assurance department at NutriPure. She's now the public face of NutriPure and travels around Canada to participate in consumer shows. Her goal is to develop a close connection and a better understanding of people's needs in order to offer the best formulated products possible. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
2: You're very good. How are you?
3: I'm nice and calm today, but we're covering a topic for people Hi, that the opposite. Exactly, yeah. for people who aren't. <laughs> so, why do we experience stress?
2: Stress is a crucial survival mechanism to a threat. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the goal of stress is to temporarily enhance your mental clarity, your muscular control, and your energetic drive. So think of, let's say you're standing on ice that's about to crack. Mm -hmm. Okay, you want to look for a solution. So you're going to look around, you're going to see, I don't know, let's say a rock. Okay, so your goal is, okay, I'm going to jump on that rock. And if ever you fall in the water, I have to be able to swim as long as I can until I get to that rock so I can save myself. Okay, so stress is very important and it plays a crucial role in our survival
3: yeah it's the flight or fight syndrome right like our ancestors had to be aware of danger and be prepared to deal with that danger and that's why we're wired that way
2: exactly
3: yeah so if that's true if that's a natural part of you know who we are and how we're wired Mm -hmm. why is stress problematic
2: the stress response is not the problem. Stress response is crucial. Like you said, it's, it's very important. But the key word is that stress is supposed to be temporary. So a good stress is you have a stress, then you have a recuperation period. So think of training. So training is a great example. You're going for a run for, I don't know, half an hour, and then you take a full day to recuperate before you stress your body again,
1: right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. So that's how stress is supposed to work. Stress becomes bad when there's no recuperation period. So when you stress, your organs work at a much faster pace because they're surviving. They're trying to give you the optimal capacity, right? So if you don't give it that recuperation time, it's like if you were working at that faster pace for uh, let's say a month where you're stressed out so you're actually aging your body so physically aging your body faster so and we know this because if you look across the world they've done a lot of studies on the lifespan and people who are stressed out so the more stressed out people are the shorter their lifespan
3: right so you're saying that the real villain is chronic stress right it's 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 the stress that doesn't go away it's the stress that we carry with us from day to day yes Mm-hmm. and I would imagine that's an even bigger problem during this lovely pandemic that we're living through, right?
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So obviously some people will react to different levels. Yeah. So there's always differences between individuals. Mm-hmm. For example, depending on the upbringing that you've had. So people have learned to, well, they've been raised in their environment with healthy coping mechanisms. So from a very young age, they've learned to, to cope with stressors. The pandemic is an amazing example of this. You can't take out the fact that in the world, there will be stressors. You can't take that away. But what you can do is is learn to cope properly. But there's a lot of other factors. I mean, upbringing and, and, and psychology is, is very important, but there's also a lot of factors. So for example, age is really great example of this. If you take the difference between an elderly individual and a child, if you take an elderly, and a child and you move them into a new house. The elderly individual will adapt much slower. Okay, so it's going to take them maybe a month, but it's going to be less intense for them. So, you know, they're going to learn, okay, uh, I have to, okay, the bathroom is here, or the, you know, the stairs are here, or I have to reach here to get my pots. this is this. So it's going to be a little bit of a stressor, but for a longer period of time. A child is complete opposite. A child will adapt much quicker But the initial impact is much stronger. So a child that comes into a new house will, for example, be like, okay, like, where's my toys? What do I do this? Where's the part? And they're going to be very stressed for a short period, let's say like a week. But then afterwards, it's going to be like, okay, it's my new house. It's fine. It's this, it's whatever. So there's a lot of factors that affect individuals.
3: So even with people who cope with stress differently, there's going to be negative impacts of stress for everybody, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And it's not just, we're not just talking about neurological negative effects. So stress has negative effects in different parts of your body. So it's not just your nervous system. It's going to impact different systems as well. So like we were talking before, stress has a specific goal. So the goal is to keep you alive. So it redirects your body's energy to prioritize the system in order to keep you alive. So it doesn't really care if you live to 100 years old. It just cares if you're alive now, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, it deprioritizes certain systems in your body. So the negative effect of stress will also impact, for example, your immune system. So let's take the example we had before of the person standing on ice. You don't really care if you have a virus in your body at that point. No. No. <laughs> you just want to get to that rock, right? No. So stressed individuals will have will be a lot more likely to get sick than a person who wouldn't be stressed. They will also have a lower pain threshold because their nervous system is so heightened, so sensitive, that just a small add-on will be very painful. It also affects the digestive tract. So it heavily down-regulates the digestive system, which means that people who are stressed out are usually a lot more sensitive to food. So they will develop allergies or intolerances. They can also get dysregulated when it comes to their intestinal tract tract. So, for example, some people with chronic stress will have chronic diarrhea or chronic constipation. Another really important negative effect of stress is the effect on the brain. So, permanent stress decreases attention span and thinking capacity. Hmm. Yeah. So, even though before I said that stress causes clear thinking... It does, but it also affects your attention span. So if you take the the scenario we were saying about the person on the ice, every single aspect of their environment is crucial. their survival right you're thinking about the thickness of of the ice the distance to the rock if somebody's coming who's going to come and save you something like that right so your environment is super crucial right so take that reaction to your environment in a situation where you're talking to someone about how to get to the coffee shop Right. right instead of focusing on what the person is saying you're still getting those inputs from your whole environment so you're thinking while the person is talking to you about, I don't know, the car blinking his flasher and the piece of gun stuck on the, the sidewalk, all those things become crucial, even though they're not. So your tension is you're not able to focus and you're not able to think clearly because you're analyzing the now. You're not analyzing what the person is saying. You're analyzing your environment.
3: So you're taking in the criteria and the impacts Mm -hmm. that you're sensing in the moment as opposed to being able to plan for long-term issues or intellectualizing or positing or thinking or, you know, it's all all sort of reactive as opposed to a controlled thought process. That makes sense.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's
3: perfect. Yeah. So why is it so difficult for us to stop stressing?
2: Because stress creates a vicious cycle. It's sad, but (laughs) the reality is that the more you're stressed, the more you're going to get stressed. So stress irritates your nervous system. So over time, your nervous system becomes highly sensitive. So if it's highly sensitive, any small stressor is going to impact it. So you're going to be sensitive to smaller things and your stress response, so the amount of time that it takes for you to recuperate from your stressor. So you have a stress and then you have your stress response. So, for example, I get into a small car crash dent my car, nothing serious, but you know, it's still, it's scary. And I have to think about my insurance and fix the car and whatever. Mm -hmm. So I have my stressor, but it's going to take me a while to get over this, right? The stress is between my stressor and the point where I return to my calm states and I'm able to think rationally and solve my problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you're stressed out constantly, that amount of time takes a lot longer. So, for example, I have my car crash. It takes me three hours to get over it and to be able to focus at work. Okay? Now, if between in that time where I'm stressed out, I get a phone call from my significant other telling me we're breaking up. Second stressor in the same period of time. It's not going to take me three hours from my second stressor because I'm still overcoming the first one, right? Right. So,
3: It's cumulative. What you're saying is your your, your ability to cope is compromised. And in that compromise, all Mm -hmm. other stressors become that much more difficult to deal with. and, And it becomes sort of like a cycle, a perpetual cycle of being unable to cope with those stressors.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So someone who is stressed out constantly is someone who's been originally stressed much more rapid than they could deal with it. And then they, they've never been able to recuperate. So a chronic stressor is just someone who's constantly trying to recuperate from the last stress, but without being able to. So now anything is going to stress them right. out.
3: Right. It's it's like being in a constant state of triage where you're always putting out the biggest fire. Makes sense.
2: Exactly. Yes. So,
3: so exactly. what can we do, Alex? You got to give us some good news. How do we break <laughs> the stress cycle?
2: Yes, there is good news. <laughs> So, stress is basically cells are working harder, right? So, because your cells in your body are working harder, they need more nutrients. Mm-hmm. Part of your recuperation part, so the, the stressor response to return to your calm state, is recuperation from the lack of nutrients. So, you're replenishing the lost nutrients. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, if you don't replenish those nutrients, you have a decreased ability to deal with stress. Mm-hmm. Okay? So diet is really important to deal with that. So I'm not saying psychology is not, and I'm not saying environment changing your environment is not crucial. Those are super, super crucial, yep. but they might take a bit longer than diet is. So if you want to have great or good responses to your stress management, diet is a key factor, and it makes a huge impact. Mm-hmm. So you have magnesium and omegas. Those are the most depleted during stress. Okay, so they're part of the neurological chain. Mm-hmm. So they're the first ones that are going to get damaged and used up through stress. Okay, so you have to increase your intake of magnesium and omegas. If you're a very stressed person, food is usually not enough to replenish those. So you're going to have to think of supplementation. Also, in the same time, you also want to help your system. So if you're a stressed person, you have to think like if your stress threshold is very, very, very low. Okay, So anything can trigger you. What you want to do is soothe your nervous system enough so you raise your stress threshold and break that cycle. So I'm going to name you four plants, and I'll explain them a little bit. l and skullcap are really great to soothe the nervous system so it reduces the neural irritability. Mm -hmm. linden and chamomile those work on alleviating the system so calming the digestive system reducing heart palpitation and it also has anti-inflammatory properties so l-theanine skullcap linden chamomile magnesium and omega will be your six really important nutrients
3: fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you we have to take a short break but when we return we'll discuss cooking with chocolate on the tonic They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
0: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
3: Carolyn Tanner-Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background, which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
0: Great. How are you, Jamie?
3: I'm doing great. We're going to talk about cooking with chocolate and the various forms that it comes in today. Amazing. Which is great. And even though we're a health and wellness show, like we're not getting into the health benefits of chocolate, let's just take as a given that it's okay to eat chocolate, okay? Perfect, yes. So where do you want to start?
0: Okay, well, it is a really big topic, so I hope that you have two and a half hours for us to talk today.
3: Of course. <laughs> yeah. But if that two and a half hours ends up being 11 and a half minutes. <laughs> no problem. Then I'm I hope. Ho- 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 there you go. Okay. Okay.
0: So, you know, let's start off by just saying that chocolate has a bunch of different complexities and it does more to your baked goods than just ooey gooey delicious goodness okay mm-hmm. yep. it provides structure because of its fat and that's why cakes and cookies that have to have chocolate have less flour than those without it provides it absorbs a lot of moisture so if you're making let's say a chocolate biscotti normally has three cups of flour and you want to turn that into a chocolate with made with cocoa you could drop the flour by half a cup and replace it with cocoa. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, there's many different nuances about chocolates. It also provides a lot of texture because of its fat. Okay? It makes it more smoother and creamy or anything you're cooking with it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk first about the question that everybody has all the time. Okay. Okay. They see a recipe or they see something sitting on the shelf and I'm talking cocoa here. Mm-hmm. So should you use Dutch cocoa, or should you use natural cocoa powder? And what on earth is the difference?
3: Okay, so do you if, ever
0: run into this, Jamie, when you're cooking?
3: I don't do the baking. Naomi okay. does the baking, so that's not my like. My realm is everything else. So I tend not to cook with chocolate. That's why this is interesting to me.
0: Okay, so as a rule of thumb. In case you're confused. Mm-hmm. Unless the recipe calls for Dutch processed cocoa, don't use it. Okay? okay. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. Dutch cocoa is neutral. It has become alkalized by the Dutching process, by a Dutched process. It's not like Dutch, like the little shoes that you wear like in Holland. Yeah. It's a Dutch process. Okay? It's washed in a solution that neutralizes the acidity of the cocoa. And now it's pH neutral. So okay. it's a little bit of a science experiment, okay? Mm-hmm. So Dutched cocoa does not react with anything alkaline like baking soda, okay? Okay. So you have to have baking powder, which is an acid. So in other words, if a recipe calls for baking soda, you're not using Dutch cocoa. It needs to have only baking powder in it. Got it. Now, it also makes the cocoa darker and more mellow, but we don't need to get into that. Natural cocoa powder, which Mm. is like Hershey's and Ghirardelli and stuff like that, is acidic. Nothing's been done to it. It retains the natural cocoa's natural acidity. So natural cocoa powder still has an alkaline pH, Mm -hmm. which works best with baking soda, which is a base, which is neutral. Okay. Okay? So forget it all. You're never going to remember it. Just don't use Dutch if it doesn't call for Dutch. Got it. Now... Should we move on to the ever question of darkness? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay.
3: I'm following your lead. You tell me. Oh, you're
0: following my lead. I love this. Okay, I'm the boss here. Fine. So let's first talk percentages. So the percentage of a chocolate bar tells you how much Milk, or how much of the bar comes from the cocoa bean or the chocolate liqueur and the cocoa butter. But keep in mind that the percentage does not tell you the ratio of the chocolate liquid to cocoa butter. Now, percentage, so a higher percentage, like 70%, let's call it, does not guarantee that it's going to deliver a darker chocolate or it just guarantees less sugar. So you really got to go by choosing your favorite chocolate or be, you know, Play the field, let's say. Choose a chocolate that you like the best. If you're doing something very savory, then like something, you know, like maybe a bread or something, then you may want to go with something less dark. Yep. So maybe a semi-sweet or even a milk. If you're doing a very, very sugary cookie, then go for something much darker. Balance off your flavors.
3: So do you have like a go-to chocolate that you, a brand that you use? I do. What do you use? I do.
0: Okay, well, first of all, so that takes me into, should you just run to the grocery store? store and buy like something that's in your baking aisle next to the flour. Yep. No, 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 no. You will not find me shopping for chocolate in the baking aisle. You've got to go, if you're going to a regular grocery store, please go to the confectionery aisle where you find the the chips and chocolate and stuff like that, not the baking aisle. So again, play the field. If a product is marked fair trade, it has less and fewer ingredients in it, more natural. So that's what you should choose. There's a lot of nice chocolate that say fair trade on it Mm -hmm. or direct trade. You don't want to bake with chocolate that you're not going to eat out of your hand.
3: Yeah, it's Sorry. the same thing. Like it's like wine, right? Like don't cook with a wine that you're not prepared to drink.
0: It's exactly right. Which we, I think we talked about last month or the month no. before. Exactly. So it doesn't mean that you should take that like real gourmet eleven dollar bar and throw it into your cake and melt it up. I just mean that if you're not if you're not willing to snack on it, then don't bake with it. Yep. Okay. So that sort of takes us. And then, and again, it's up to you whether, you know, you buy a really expensive one or a little bit on the cheaper end, but don't buy the stuff just in the baking aisle. Okay. And the same goes for cocoa powder. Don't just buy the stuff that's staring at you in the baking aisle. Look for something good. I love Hershey's and it's not expensive and it tastes really good. And it's a natural cocoa powder. Ghirardelli's really nice. Mm-hmm. Cocoa powder. I'm not talking cocoa powder.
3: What about chocolate? What do you use?
0: I have a few preferences, but my go-to is... Is the lint bar. And okay. the reason why I really like it is because it's always available. I also like the green and blacks, but the lint is always available and it's very thin. Yep. And it's a 100 gram or four ounce bar. Yep, And it breaks really nicely. And it's just, it's not very expensive, always available, and excellent.
3: I know that Naomi prefers Calibo.
0: I was just going to suggest Calibo. Yeah. Harder to find. So it's not something going to run out even to, you know, your local, uh, as they say in Quebec, dip hunter, to buy corner store, to buy a chocolate, chocolate, you won't find Calibo. but
3: You can get Calibo in bulk at John Vince. And yes, you can. They have okay. all, so they have the solid blocks. Yeah, They have milk. They have variations on the darkness. You can go up to 70. They also have the chips and the little... And uh, the wafers. And the wafers. And yeah. they, they really have all of it. So if you are serious about baking with chocolate, I recommend that.
0: Then I totally agree. Actually, so let's talk about whether you should use bars, blocks, mm. wafers, chips, or a cocoa and when yep. to use each one. So this is just a short form Coles notes. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. So bars. Now we're talking about those thin lint bars or a thin calibo bar. They're really good for cookies, puddings, cakes, hot chocolate as long as you don't want to sweeten stuff. You could buy in a bar Calibo, Valrona, Lint. Those are three very popular brands. Yep. all really really good okay? And you could buy semi sweet which is around 45 to 60 or dark, which is anywhere from 60 to 90, let's say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, white and milk as well. Now, you could buy blocks, which is very similar, yep. but much, much. This is for larger format baking, but it's much harder to chop. And I really suggest using a serrated knife if you are going to try to
3: chop. Uh, I'm responsible for the chocolate chopping in the house.
0: Yes. What do you use?
3: I'm an expert. I actually use a chef's knife yeah, or a cleaver, yeah. but you have to be careful. Yes. And you kind of do it. I kind of shave it, but yes. I, I can break down chocolate like nobody honestly well, it's, it's a great it's, my bar. it's a great skill but it's it's not easy because you can cut yourself because the chocolate like it's really thick really thick
0: it re- and you could break a sweat and then you're gonna yeah. get water in your chocolate well
3: you know i work out so i don't really oh, I, I, okay. I do so I'm, there's not a lot of sweat in our chocolate <laughs> but it is work but actually when you shave it down like that it melts really evenly so that's it does.
0: Actually, so let's talk about this.
3: Actually, I'm going to jump forward for yeah. one second. Yeah.
0: Wafers, okay? Because yeah. mm-hmm. I'm going to save chips for the last. Wafers. So wafers are very similar to bars and blocks. They're just much smaller. They're like little discs. Yep. So they're made up of the same thing bars and blocks are. They're, they're the perfect solution when you don't want to chop or break something. And they also come in milk dark white semi. OK, yep. chip it. They don't change shape because they're they're full of stabilizers and other and preservatives and, and they're fermented, I think. You make a chocolate chip cookie with a chip it and you take it out of the oven and it's hot and delicious and they still retain their shape. Yep. They're not my thing. So I would rather take a bar, like a thin bar or a wafer, yep. and break it up or smash it up with a rolling pin and put those inside a chocolate chip cookie. Let's not call it chip anymore, but a chocolate chunk cookie. Yep. And then what happens is they come out of the oven and you'll have little pools of chocolate puddles because it melts, because they melt.
3: The original cookie was a chocolate chunk cookie.
0: Yeah.
3: And then when the major manufacturers started making chips, they started advertising the idea of a chocolate chip cookie. But if you look at the original recipes for the item, which is iconic, it's actually a chocolate chunk cookie.
0: Cookie. Yes, exactly. And if you go back to your, you know, ancient recipe, like I go back mm. to my grandmother's chocolate chip cookie recipe, which is still my favorite one. Yep. And I will swap it for a good dark chocolate, 70% caliber yep. lint bar, and I smash it up with my rolling pin. hmm I'll make that and it's like, wow, like the chocolate chip cookie really changed.
3: Yeah, it's much better. It's much better. And once you start having dark chocolate, it's real, like I used to be a milk chocolate fiend, but once you have start having more dark chocolate and even just eating it instead of having milk, like just eating it straight up, not even cooking with it, it's really hard to have milk chocolate. It tastes too sweet.
0: Oh, totally. Totally. And if you're making a really good chocolate chunk cookie, now we're going chunk, right? Yep. We're not going to use chippets anymore. And it has, you know, it's laden with sugar, which is fine. Yeah. And, yeah butter and sweet butter and deliciousness. You don't need semi-sweet or sweet chocolate chips. You really need that 70% bar and the whole thing will change. Like your chocolate chip cookies
3: will go to a different level. Agreed. Well, you're right. We probably could talk about this for two hours. Unfortunately, we're out of time today. What do you want to talk about next month?
0: Next month, I want to talk about barbecuing, not meat.
3: Fantastic. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. (sighs) Does the fear of losing
0: control keep you awake at night? Enjoy better sleep on something you can control. The Supreme Adjustable Bed by Ultramatic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life.
3: Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at
0: ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep.
2: This is The Tonic on Zoomer
3: Radio. Adarsh Shah nurtured the rise of Ultramatic, the iconic Canadian brand of adjustable beds and maker of delightful wellness products. He received his bachelor's degree in engineering at Cornell University, graduating magna cum laude in 1999. After graduation, Adarsh joined The Monitor Group, a Cambridge-based strategy consulting company. He worked for them in the New York, Toronto, and Mumbai offices on various corporate strategy, market entry, and merger and acquisition projects. He's a proud Torontonian, having lived here for over 30 years, albeit with a few adventurous years in New York in between. He's also the father of two mischievous girls and a caregiver to his happy, healthy, and wine-loving parents. Welcome back to the show, Adarsh. How are you?
4: Thank you, Jamie. I'm doing great.
3: So springtime has always been the time where we start talking about echo and green. It always coincides with spring, green shoots coming up through the ground, and green is on our mind. So let's talk a little bit about green sleep products. Make sense?
4: Absolutely, and I think very appropriate as uh, Earth Day just passed.
3: Exactly. Sounds good. What are most mattresses made from?
4: Well, today's mattresses and pillows, actually, are mostly made from synthetic material like petroleum-based polyester in the fabric or polyurethane foam in the actual filling of the product. Now, polyester is the primary component in the covering fabric, but you can find polycotton options sometimes. But if you look at the majority of mattresses, they use almost 100% polyester fiber.
3: Okay and is it possible that we can use eco-friendly materials cuz polyester is not i think we can agree
4: yes in the top fabric of the mattress or the pillow there are some options okay now you've got environmentally fabric environmentally friendly fabrics like organic cotton cotton flax blends in fact and uh, one of my favorites is tencel which is made from the fibers of the bamboo plant.
3: Right. I was going to ask you about that, because I know there's some brands out there that tout the bamboo mattresses and bedding.
4: Yes. And it's not the most environmentally friendly fabric. I think organic cotton would probably be your your best option. Right. But it's certainly affordable, much more affordable than organic cotton.
3: Okay. You know, you've been in the business a long time. Do you want to elaborate on some of the pros and cons of some of these fabrics?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, really, it's just not just the fabric, but it's also the foam. You know, the cushioning that we get in our mattresses, either in the quilting of the fabric or the pillow top on the surface of the mattress, is made is usually made from polyurethane foam. And both polyester and polyurethane are petrochemical byproducts. So they contribute to the unsustainable extraction of natural resources.
3: Right. Although one could argue if, if the extractions are ongoing for the petroleum, you know, at least the byproducts are being used. I, I suppose one could make that argument.
4: You could. I mean, you know, and it's also how these products are manufactured. Right. And sometimes we don't think about the manufacturing process, nor about the logistics of how these products move. You know, a, a case in point is your traditional pocket coil inside a spring mattress. Right. You might think that, you know, a steel coil is, is a better alternative to foam because it's not using as much material. It's got a lot of air in there. However, the production of steel, especially galvanized steel, which is used to prevent rusting, it uses an immense amount of energy and natural resources like iron ore and zinc.
3: Okay, The natural fabrics that we're talking about, do they wear as well? Or are they as breathable? How do they work?
4: They are actually quite breathable. They are temperature regulating, especially uh, wool mm-hmm. textiles. Mm-hmm. One thing that one can look for is you'll, you'll often notice these natural fabrics are in a, in a cream color or a light beige. Right, and that's because dyes can be harmful during the manufacturing process and to the sleeper afterwards. So you'll often find now, actually what you'll see is that this is changing as more biodegradable dyes are becoming inexpensive and more widely available.
3: So it's not just a crew, right? Isn't that the color, the natural color of the fiber? Isn't that what it's called? That's right, that's right. That's a crossword puzzle clue. That's the only reason I know that. So So let's talk about comfort. Are there any differences between the eco-friendly and non-eco-friendly products in terms of comfort?
4: Yes, and you know, you have to ask yourself is, you know, well, people have been sleeping for a long time, <laughs> you know, for millennia. Yeah. Why did we all of a sudden start using springs and foam and, and so on? And to tell you the truth, it's actually been a recent innovation. Steel coils, mattress springs, were invented in the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. Polyurethane foam was invented in 1950s, and, and memory foam was invented by NASA in 1966. So, you know, what were we sleeping on before these components came on the scene and why we're we not using them? Right. So you know, I think that's your, that's your question. And one of the biggest reasons is that those those natural materials that people used to use, like cotton, wool, and feathers, they didn't have the same resilience as steel and foam has. Mm-hmm. And people found that they would sag uh, very easily and would not be pressure relieving.
3: Okay. So so really, what you're saying is historically. The innovations of the coils and the, and the polyurethane actually added to our comfort, and that's why they were being used and favored, right?
4: Comfort and durability. Okay. Absolutely. And cost at the end of the day, because it prevented people from having to change out their mattresses more frequently.
3: Okay. But is is that still the case? I would presume technology has sort of made the eco-friendly products a a little bit more durable and perhaps a little bit more comfortable, yeah?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's undeniable that consumers today, all of us, we want eco-friendly green options. So, you know, the manufacturing industry furniture and mattress industry hasn't been blind to that. And there's been a lot of innovation behind the scenes to try to create green options. One of the earlier options was a polyurethane foam that could be made with a soy-based chemical mm-hmm. or castor oil. Yep. However, we soon discovered that the composition was so small that it really wasn't, it was kind of a smoke and mirrors.
3: You mean it wasn't so eco-friendly as we were led to believe?
4: Correct. So really the best innovation that's really occurred in the recent past has been the invention of latex. Right. That was developed by Dunlop. A lot of people know the brand. It's connected with a lot of rubber products. Yep. It was developed in 1926 and came from the sap of the rubber tree. So that organic latex is, is great. It's pressure relieving. It's very durable. It's resilient. And so that's a great option. But one thing to note is that Manufacturers have, manufacturers have now been able to manufacture synthetic latex, mm-hmm. combining a little bit of petrochemical byproduct with natural latex to, to kickstart the process. It's really important to read the fine print and, and look for certifications.
3: Okay. So if we're talking about certifications, what should people looking for eco-friendly bedding be looking for?
4: So for latex, one you could look for is uh, the GOL certification. That's G-O-L-S. Mm-hmm. stands for Global Organic Latex Standard. And it certifies that the natural rubber came from a certified organic plantation. And it also stipulates that the mattress must be made with more than 95% certified organic raw material. Okay. Another one is Oikatex. This one's very popular. And that certifies that the textile or or the fabric has been tested for harmful substances and that it is harmless in human ecological terms. Mm -hmm. There are three more I'll mention real quick. Mm -hmm. It's a GOTS, G-O-T-S. It's another certification for certifying the organic nature of wool, kapok, and cotton. Yes. And it prohibits chemicals used that could cause cancer, birth defects, and other harmful concerns. Mm -hmm. rds is a standard for the ethical sourcing of feathers. It prohibits the removal of feathers from live birds and prohibits the force feeding of birds. And the last one I'll mention, which we often see on buildings these days, is the Green Guard Gold Certification. And it's quite tough to achieve, but it sets a maximum level of emissions for the product as a whole with the ultimate goal of improving uh, indoor air quality.
3: That's very helpful. The other side of the equation, I guess, is the disposal of existing mattresses. And is it possible to recycle a mattress?
4: It is. There are a few companies that do that. They'll strip apart the fabric and the foam and the steel and they will recycle it. There is a cost for it. Recover Canada is one option. They'll come and pick up your mattress or they have drop-off depots in the GTA. And uh, we at Ultramatic, we can also recycle your mattress for you, we can sanitize it, and we'll either donate it or recycle recycle it. And you can call us and ask us about our sustainable sleep options.
3: Is there a charge when you do it at Ultramatic?
4: Not if you're purchasing a system from us.
3: Okay. Let me ask you a question. So are you seeing a greater percentage of your customers opting for the green options or has it remained static over the last couple of years?
4: You know, it's, it's certainly been something that we get asked a lot more about, mm-hmm. but it's really important to not get worried about finding the most eco-friendly option possible. I get a lot of concerned people trying to really optimize every single component of the mattress. Right. Because you might be compromising other important aspects of the purchase decision. After all, you know, we let's not lose sight of the main objective and that's to get really good, refreshing and safe at a budget, at a price point that works for you. Well,
3: that was going to be my next question. My experience is that sometimes the green products carry a premium that is difficult to rationalize when you're looking at other products in the market.
4: That's right. And while things are getting more affordable, and we are able to make eco-friendly mattresses and source products in a more efficient manner, which uses less transportation. I think that there is no maximum limit. If you want to spend money, if money is of no no object, there's no probably no maximum limit to how far you can go. But, you know, it's really important to think about your ultimate objectives, improving your sleep quality and making it work within your budget.
3: If people are interested in learning about the green options at Ultramatic, what's their best course of action?
4: Call us anytime. We're open every day. We have a 1-800 number. You'll find it on our website, ultramatic.ca. Or, of course, stop into our store. We're at Bathurst and Lawrence, and we are actually open. We're allowed to stay open during this lockdown period because we do specialize in health and wellness issues.
3: Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
4: Thank you very much, Jamie.
3: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Alexandra Leon, Carolyn Tanner-Cohen, and Adarsh Shah. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The March-April issue is still available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and was delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at Next week on the show, we'll discuss vitamin K2-D3, yoga and emotional agility, spring eating and fitness goals in your 40s, 50s and 60s. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.